Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode is a special one because we're focusing entirely on Q&As. So we've gathered up a bunch of questions from listeners, and today we answer them. In this episode, we talk about things like the relative impact of lifting and protein intake on muscle protein synthesis, strategies for dealing with suboptimal sleep patterns, how to handle anti-lifting advice from your doctor, nutritional strategies that may or may not reduce muscle loss during detraining, how hard you should train, studies that we would like to see completed in the future, topics where our opinion is firmly against the common wisdom, and much more. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only permanent host, Eric Trexler. Today, I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing today? I am doing well. How are you? I am doing well. Actually, that's a fucking lie. I'm not doing well. Yeah. Uh, I I broke my arm two days ago, and uh, shit sucks, man. Would not recommend. But yeah. uh, I mean, in a in a cosmic sense, I'm doing well, I guess. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, broken arm, annoying, small setback. Shouldn't dwell on it. So yeah, overall, I'm doing well. I, I'm going back to my original answer. Yeah, and I I can confirm for all the skeptics out there, there is significant bruising. Uh, clearly, a break has occurred. Uh, very unfortunate to see, but uh, hopefully, you'll be on the mend and back to a hundred percent very soon. Hope so. All right. So uh, a little note to listeners: this is going to be a special Q and A episode. Uh, normally, with the show, we've got a bunch of different segments. That is the formula that brought us right to the top of the podcasting industry. Uh, we are abandoning that for today's episode only because uh, we get a lot of questions that get submitted, and it's impossible to stay on top of all of them. But you know, every now and then, we like to dig into the vault and uh, and give you the answers that you. Uh, so desperately crave as listeners. So a bunch of different Q&As here. Uh, and I'm going to kick things off with a question from Angus. And for my questions, uh, Greg, you got a bunch of new ones from the Stronger by Science community group. And it, if you're not a member of that Facebook group, uh, the link for that Facebook group is in the uh, description of today's episode. But I went back all the way to like day one uh, so the questions that I'm drawing from were submitted in like 2019. The people who asked them probably don't even listen anymore. I mean, statistically speaking, they probably don't even lift anymore. Probably not. Yeah. But uh, anyway, if if these people are out there, uh, thanks for being with us from literally day one. Uh, so I got a question from Angus here. And, and the question is, how does muscle protein synthesis caused by protein consumption compared to the magnitude of muscle protein synthesis caused by resistance training. Um, lifting is a huge, huge driver of muscle protein synthesis. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we'll look at these studies and we'll kind of quibble over the details of this protein source versus that protein source in the first few hours after ingestion how large of a response in muscle protein synthesis do they induce? And indeed, when we look with that particular approach uh, to the question, there are some differences between protein sources. It can be really, uh, it can be really tempting to get really caught up in those small differences between specific protein sources 
it can be really tempting to get caught up in trying to optimize very nuanced protein timing strategies based on that research. But sometimes we forget uh, the magnitude of, of how much, basically how that those magnitudes scale when we look at the effect of acute protein consumption versus the, the impact of resistance training or, or lifting. Uh, lifting is an enormous driver, a very, very potent driver of muscle protein synthesis and there are some cool instances where we can really see how big of an impact resistance training has so uh, one study that comes to mind is the androgen deprivation study by hansen and colleagues uh, from a few years ago Uh, but but they looked at the muscle protein response uh, muscle protein synthesis response to uh, to protein feeding in people Uh, who were undergoing androgen deprivation therapy uh, as part of their cancer treatment, I believe, uh, and then a group of control uh, participants. And the the differences in kind of baseline muscle protein synthesis uh, were were quite notable, but resistance training itself went a very long way in terms of closing that gap in that kind of resting muscle protein synthesis. and it's pretty remarkable to think of how big of an impact it would have to have to overcome that gap induced by androgen deprivation. Uh, we also see glimpses of this when we look at the immobilization literature. So there are a number of different studies that uh, investigate this question or this problem, and it's a big problem. Immobilization happens a lot. Um, you know, uh, let's say, for instance, you broke a limb. Uh, you might be casted for a while, and, and so you'll be th- that limb will be immobilized. And people are always wondering during immobilization whether it's due to inactivity uh, or, or uh, casting or bracing or, or some other reason. Are there nutritional strategies that can attenuate the loss of strength or the loss of lean mass? And the nutritional strategies have pretty low efficacy. Honestly, they're pretty underwhelming. Uh, sometimes you'll see studies that try to just bump up dietary protein a little bit. Uh, They don't tend to have a really big impact on the degree of muscle wasting. Uh, There are some studies that that I will talk about a little later that look at higher dose supplementation with either essential amino acids or leucine specifically. Mixed findings, some of them have a small benefit, but by far the most important thing you can do during a layoff or during a mobilization is, if it's possible, do some degree of, of muscular loading, some degree of resistance training if possible. In many cases, that's not going to be doable. Most of the time, that limb is immobilized for a reason, and you're not going to be able to do any significant loading. But uh, the the impact of resistance training is very substantial and of a much larger magnitude than some of the little dietary differences with regards to protein intake that we tend to obsess over. Um, It's even, it's interesting when you look at the research on layoffs from training, uh, you know, uh, there's research showing even if you cut your volume by like 85, 90%, just doing some of that training volume can, can go a really long way in preserving strength and muscle gains during a layoff. Uh, so yeah, resistance training is really driving the stimulus, but of course these things go hand in hand, right? So if you are 
for whatever reason, certainly not a recommendation. If you're doing resistance training, but really intentionally restricting your protein intake, you're not going to maximize your gains. That, that's not a good strategy. There is a bit of an additive effect when we have a really good strategy in terms of protein sources and protein timing and the amount of protein. When we combine that with an efficacious resistance training program, that's a good thing. The, the two work together uh, and having both of those strategies in unison is better than having one or the other. Uh, same thing. You could have a really great muscle building diet and you've got your protein amount sorted out. You, you've got a good di distribution of protein throughout the day, decent timing of those servings. Um, you could have all the nutritional components right, but if you don't have a stimulus for growth, if you don't have the resistance training, uh, it's not going to do that much in terms of supporting gains in muscle mass or gains in lean, in lean tissue. So uh, there is kind of a, a combination effect uh, where you want to make sure that you have a robust training stimulus to induce uh, or, or to really drive hypertrophy, but you also want to have the correct nutritional support to maximize that response. So resistance training drives the stimulus. I would say that dietary strategies related to protein have more of a permissive role in terms of maximizing the adaptation to it. Uh, and that is my answer. So you've got one now from Hayato? Hayato? I'd assume it's Hayato. Hayato. Yeah. Uh, yeah, from Hayato Nishiyama, he asks, uh, why don't researchers start tracking sleep and include it in their analysis? Uh, this is a very easy, or this is very easy using a sleep tracker app. It may not be the most accurate thing, but I feel like it's better or more accurate than self-reported nutritional intake. Sometimes researchers don't even include those self-reports into their analysis, so I don't see the point. Uh, I assume the implication there is I don't see the point in not also tracking sleep. Uh, so yeah, why don't uh, exercise science researchers track and report subjects' sleep habits? Uh, and, and I think that there are... A couple reasons for that. I think first and foremost, um, it's <clears throat> the, the the most basic reason, I think, uh, is simply that there's not yet any research that I'm aware of, at least, showing that not sleeping enough impacts your gains. Um, and I very much think that it does, but I don't think that's yet been empirically demonstrated. So, you know, th there have been some some short-term studies, and there have certainly been some acute studies showing that if, uh, you know, if you extend the amount you're sleeping for a couple weeks, performance increases a bit. Uh, or if you uh, restrict sleep severely for one night or a couple of nights, or if you uh, just completely go without sleep for one night. Uh, maybe there will be some performance decrements. But I'm not aware of any, especially resistance training studies where, you know, they put two people or they put two, they put people in two different groups. Uh, one group sleeps, you know, a normal amount, uh, seven to nine hours per night. Another group sleeps, I don't know, five, six hours per night for eight weeks and then see what strength gains and hypertrophy look like. I very much think that sleeping a sufficient amount is beneficial, but uh, it's, you know, you only have finite research resources. 
Uh, and, you know, you can collect as many variables or as many outcome measures as you could want to, you know, try to find little things that are associated with, with X, Y, and Z. Uh, but generally, if you're, if you're playing things by the book, you primarily want to focus on things that have been shown to be associated with whatever outcome variable you're interested in. So one of the reasons that scientists do frequently look at self-reported nutrition intake, even if, as you acknowledged, self-reported nutrition intake isn't necessarily the best and most accurate measure, we do know that total caloric intake, whether someone's in a deficit or a surplus, will probably impact their ability to gain strength and muscle, uh, and certainly if they're eating adequate levels of protein or not. So nutritional variables have been shown to uh, modify the responses we're interested in, usually muscle growth and strength gains. And even though it it would be very intuitive to assume that sleep does as well, uh, that uh, that quantitative evidence just doesn't exist yet. So the the first step would just be to <laughs> um, find some very understanding participants, half of whom might be willing to only sleep five or six hours per night for eight to 12 weeks, uh, and the other half sleeping a normal amount, and see, you know, does not sleeping enough impact your gains. Uh, you'd also need to find a very understanding IRB to approve that, because It's generally understood not sleeping enough, not a particularly great thing, Uh, and the people who are tasked with keeping human research subjects safe may not be too enthused with that idea. So anyway, uh, there are certainly some hurdles there, but yeah, one of the reasons that people don't collect that data is just because you'd have a hard time justifying the collection of that data and reporting it in the study just because... Uh, it hasn't been shown yet to affect the outcome measures people are interested in. Um, and I think the other, I mean, I, I think the other major reason uh, is just that it's another variable that would probably be of relatively low quality. Um, because, you know, you could go about it a couple different ways. Uh, you could just ask for self-reported sleep data. So, you know, how much did you sleep last night? And on a scale from one to 10, uh, how high of quality do you feel that sleep was? Uh, I actually did that for my thesis research project, um, looking at whether either quantity or perceived quality of sleep was associated with recovery rates from a standardized fatigue protocol, uh, and I found that it was not. Um, If memory serves, actually, soreness at 24 hours post-training was actually positively associated with sleep duration the previous night, uh, which... If you took that at face value, you would say like, oh, sleeping a lot makes you more sore and recover more poorly. But I mean, I I think that was probably just a spurious correlation. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you can collect that data, but it's probably not going to be the highest quality if it's self-reported. And the, the question asks or specifically brings up sleep tracker apps. I don't know that those have been validated against gold standard measures of uh, sleep either. So, you know, I, ideally there's like little, little, uh, helmet things people put on that have electrodes on them that can actually measure brain waves. And so 
like sleep researchers can actually see like, hey, when are when are these brain waves shifting? So we know the person has actually fallen asleep. We know how much time they spend in REM sleep, stage four sleep, etc. Um, I don't I don't know that any of the sleep tracker apps on the market have been validated against gold standard measures like that. So if they haven't, I mean, whether you're using an app or just using self-report, it's it's going to be more low quality data. Um, and I mean, <laughs> unless you're an exceptionally well-funded lab, um, you're not going to be able to use gold standard sleep measures on all of your subjects, uh, especially if they're not, you know, like inpatient, like if you're not working out of a metabolic ward, which I mean, <laughs> you won't be. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, ultimately it would probably be a low quality measure and, uh, until sleep duration or quality is actually empirically shown to be uh, predictive of or associated with hypertrophy and strength gains, which again, I'm not expressing skepticism towards that concept. I very much think it is. Uh, but but that needs to be empirically validated before you'd have a strong justification to add another relatively low quality measure to the data that you're reporting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, one of the issues, like you said, is it's not a super robust, high quality piece of information to put into the model. You could end up with some spurious outcomes that are unanticipated and might, you know, it might be tempting to overinterpret them uh, and follow some lines of thinking that maybe aren't really solid. Uh, Another thing is, a lot of times we're talking about pretty small sample research, and there's just simply a limit to, to how many variables you can try to jam into a single model when you've got very few participants. Uh, and that's kind of a logistical constraint. It, it's, it's very bad practice to have, you know, eight in each group and say, oh, yeah, we're going to control for 13 dietary variables and look at the effect of the intervention. Uh, it's, it's logistically not something that can really be done. And, and so, yeah, when we're talking about small sample research, I think some people get into this field as a student and they're like, Oh, I'm going to become a statistical mastermind and learn all the really nuanced, fancy stuff. And then they kind of are in, you know, they're a grad student for a couple of years and they're like, wait a minute, we can't use any of this stuff. Can we? And it's like, yeah, not really. <laughs> uh, you know, all, all the really cool, fancy stuff usually requires sample sizes that we're just never going to have unless you're doing some observational stuff with, with uh, survey data or something like that. So yeah, there's just logistical constraints. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, we can have one or maybe two covariates with the sample sizes we're dealing with. And, you know, more often than not, uh, the covariate is just going to be like if you run an ANCOVA, just baseline measures of whatever measure you're taking. So, you know, uh, changes in vastus lateralis thickness covariating for baseline vastus lateralis thickness. I mean, that that's probably the most intuitive covariate. And then uh, maybe you could justify sneaking one more in, like total protein intake or something like that. But yeah, uh, that, that that is a good point. Even if you had the sleep data, statistically, you wouldn't really be able to justify including it most of the time. It would just be uh, an additional number reported in a table that you weren't actually using in your main analysis. So yeah, it, it that makes it even harder to justify including. Yeah. 
and, and before we leave the topic, that's why you see a lot of researchers who just collect the nutrition stuff. They take a look at it and they don't factor it into the the analysis. Is they ba- basically just want to see, you know, hey, did my supplement group have twice the protein of my control group for no reason? If so, I've got a problem. It doesn't, you know, doesn't always make its way into the analysis though. Um, okay, so I've got a couple questions here that are kind of related, so I'm going to answer both of them at once. Uh, Josh VL asked, uh, how would you personally respond to a medical professional that tells you to stop squatting because it's bad for, for your knees? Um, so I'm going to start with that one. Uh, both of them are kind of injury related. Um, so first of all, you know, a medical professional tells you to modify your training, uh, for health related reasons or injury related reasons. Whenever I get that feedback uh, from somebody, they, they reach out, send me a message, say their doctor said this, their doctor said that. M- my first reaction is to cut the medical professional a little bit of slack, not to be too harsh or too critical of them. Because it's really important that we remember what their job is as a kind of general practitioner, uh, medical professional. Uh, you know, the advice you get from a sports medicine doctor who specializes working with high-level athletes is probably going to be pretty different than the advice you get from a general general practitioner. A lot of times, the, the medical professionals that we're seeing uh, as members of the general population are not specialized in elite performance or, you know, professional athletics or anything like that. Their job is, you know, someone comes with an issue with symptoms, with some activity that might contribute to symptoms or cause symptoms, their job is to make sure that those symptoms aren't around and aren't, uh, you know, modif- you know, having a big impact on day-to-day life and altering quality of life. So, you know, if you go to a doctor and say, yeah, every time I bench press, my shoulder hurts, they're just going to say, hey, uh, maybe lay off the bench press. That is their job for, for the most part, like on a very simple level. Uh, you, you could argue about, you know, maybe that shouldn't be, but I, I think a lot of medical practitioners are looking for the most parsimonious way to solve your problem. And if your problem is you're doing a non-essential activity that causes a symptom, they're going to tell you to cease the non-essential activity. Yeah, the, their priority is making sure you can uh, perform activities of daily living or, you know, basic job functions with uh, minimal discomfort and maximal efficacy. And they'll prescribe a pretty uh, pretty conservative treatment plan to do that. They're, they're interested in, can you go about day-to-day life and work pain-free, not how much do you squat? Yeah, and, and before we get the, the comments, I'm sure that there are a lot of people in the medical field on some other podcasts who are probably debating whether or not that's how the healthcare field should operate. You know, I, I, there's probably, I have to assume, a, a, a contingent of practitioners who say, hey, we need to start treating the person in a more comprehensive way and considering their their hobbies, their interests, their their lifestyle. Uh, so I don't, I don't qualify to have an opinion on that. I'm just telling you what, what the typical general practitioners kind of operating with or their kind of viewpoint that, that I think in many cases is defensible based on, you know, their training and their focus area. Uh, it, it's kind of unfair to walk in to your general practitioner's office in like a f- family medicine setting and say like, okay, so treat me as if I'm an Olympian. And they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. 
Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I try to cut them some slack. I try to contextualize that advice. But, you know, I think it can be really helpful rather than just kind of being upset with your me- with your medical professional. I do think we live in a really interesting time where you can access people who do have medical credentials uh, pretty easily. Uh, you know, you can do a consultation with somebody uh, virtually who really does specialize working with lifters, working with athletes. And so, yeah, you, you might set up a call with somebody who is a doctor or a physical therapist or, or something like that who gets it and who's like, okay, we can work with this. Uh, let's contextualize this. Let's consider your lifestyle, consider your passions and hobbies, and we can put together an alternative plan that isn't so conservative. Uh, I remember back when I was, uh, you know, a high school athlete, the coaches would always say, for the love of God, don't go to your doctor. (laughs) Like just, (laughs) and they meant, I mean, they were good. They were good folks. But like you, you've probably heard that advice too, right? Yeah, yeah. Like your high school coach is like, just go to the athletic trainer. They'll let you know if you need to get like real medical intervention. Because we we'd have all these kids who go to the doctor because their ankle hurts, and their doctor's like, yeah, you have some non-specific ankle tweak, and therefore uh, don't do anything for like twelve weeks. And it's like that's for our purposes pretty unnecessary, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. I would say don't don't beat up on your medical professional, but do seek out a second opinion from someone who who can really understand where you're coming from and understand your perspective. And you know the next thing to keep in mind is you know like I said that the medical professional is likely trying to give you advice to like you said, Greg, uh, just get you through activities of daily living and occupational tasks. Uh, but when it comes to our hobbies, especially if they're a little bit more extreme, you know if you really I mean, it's not like we're like, you know, doing uh, stuntman work or anything like that. But, you know, there, there's some there's some risk involved with really heavy lifting. You know, I like to go skiing. People break limbs, tear ACLs, and, and have more serious injuries doing that stuff. You know, you can't live your life based on, you know, an actuary table and saying, okay, what's going to maximize my probability of living to the age of what, like 78 or whatever? Uh, so, you know, with life, we have a cost-benefit analysis, and your medical professional might have a different weighting system for costs and benefits. So you might just have to have a conversation with them, explain how you weigh those costs and benefits, and see if they can kind of work with you and give you some updated information that's actually useful to you. But um, yeah, and sometimes you're going to get medical professionals who just aren't really up to date with uh, training information, nutrition information. I'm sure there are a lot of medical professionals who say some really outdated stuff uh, about uh, the topics that we obsess over, but it's just not their focal point. It's it's not their area where they spend most of their time. So you have to understand that and seek out people who can really level with you and understand your concerns. Yeah. And, and just to build on that, uh, I, I very much endorse not living your life uh, based on actuarial tables. Uh, The Stronger by Science podcast supports living your life a quarter mile at a time. Fast and Furious 9, proud sponsors of the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, Fast 9 comes out, I believe, tomorrow uh, in American theaters, and I assume around the world, either then or soon thereafter. Uh, Go see it. It's going to be about family. It's going to be about John Cena. Uh, All good things. I'm surprised they went with that title instead of Nine Fast, Nine Furious. 
I think that would have been would have been great. Uh, okay, the, the second question that I had here is also... Dude, I'm so stoked. I fucking love Fast and Furious. I don't know why. I, I, I saw the one and I just thought it was ridiculous. So I, I have... Uh... I have a very specific taste in movies I see in theaters, and that is the bigger and dumber an action flick is, the better it is to watch in the theaters. And uh, in terms of just like a big, fun, dumb, summer popcorn movie franchise, you really can't do better than Fast and Furious. They're all so stupid, uh, but so much fun to watch in a theater. Yeah, I just I I absolutely love them. I jumped into the series on I think number four or five. Uh, as you know, I like to wait till a series really gets going <laughs> and then jump in without context. Uh, only when someone makes me. So I went to the fifth one with somebody who really liked the first four, I think. And uh, a character comes on the screen, and she just kind of like nudges me with her elbow and goes, "Oh, by the way." She doesn't remember most things, but sometimes she does. And I was like, you know what? If I was writing a movie, that would be a very convenient device to use in my plot. Yeah, like, yeah. When you want her to have a, a very persistent memory issue, she does, but sometimes she doesn't. And that's good. Um, anyway, moving on. I've got a question uh, from someone named Solid Snake, and it kind of merges the last two questions. So, uh, Broadly speaking, this individual uh, was going to get surgery, and uh, it was a hernia repair surgery. Wait, first, Trex. Do you know who Solid Snake is? No. Okay. Uh, so th that's a video game reference. Uh, he was the protagonist of the Metal Gear Solid franchise. Okay. Um, j just the way you said that name suggested to me that you uh, you had no knowledge of one of the most iconic video game characters ever. Uh, so I, I just wanted to check that to be sure. Yeah, perhaps I haven't made that clear. If it's about a movie, a TV show, a video game, really anything related to society or culture, I don't I don't know about it. I don't get it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, all right, so this video game character is getting a hernia repair surgery, uh, not allowed to exercise for a given amount of time. Surgeon wasn't really given clear updates, basically just said, hey, you can't lift anything over 30 pounds for like three or four weeks. Uh, so the question is, what do I do about this? Uh, how quickly should I expect to recover? When can I start lifting again? And on top of that, they asked, what can I do to make sure I don't lose my gains during that time period, specifically as it pertains to nutritional strategies? Um, so like I said, with the nutritional strategies part, the dietary stuff just isn't that efficacious. Uh, there have been studies looking at higher protein approaches. They don't work that well. Um, you know, you pretty much lose the muscle if you're not activating the muscle and loading it and providing that tension. The few studies that do report some promising effects uh, give somewhere around 15 to 19 grams per day of leucine which is a lot of leucine uh, on top of, you know, the, the, the typical diet. Uh, so those studies use essential amino acids or just, you know, isolated leucine supplements to give pretty big doses uh, throughout the day. And a lot of the protein studies or the lower dose leucine studies where the individuals are only getting 10 
uh, grams per day or less of extra leucine, uh, they really just don't seem to be efficacious. So if I had to put my money on maybe something that could partially attenuate uh, some of the detraining losses of muscle mass that might occur, maybe adopting a high-protein diet with some pretty generous additional leucine supplementation, that would be my my best guess. But like I said, I I really don't have high hopes for that that strategy. I think it when it comes to maintaining muscle mass and strength, you, you just got to load the tissue, unfortunately. Um, now, the, another question uh, was about, you know, the, the specific timeline to return, the retraining process and things like that. Like I said, if, if you're interested in maintaining muscle and strength, any amount of safe and tolerable muscle loading is going to be far superior to none. But the specific timeline for recovery is, is really variable and it's the type of thing where you really have to rely on your medical professionals to to give you contextualized answers to your questions. And you might have to bother them a little bit and say, can I do this? Can I do that? They're likely to, to err on the conservative side. But one of the things to keep in mind, I know a lot of people struggle with this issue where they want to train through something that maybe they shouldn't train through for, for a period of time. You know, like you have a surgery and they say, hey, for two weeks, for four weeks, you got to let everything heal up so that you don't undo what we did surgically. And then, you know, we have all sorts of problems on our hands. So uh, people struggle with that a lot. And it's really critical to remember that retraining is a pretty quick process. Like when you get back into training after a layoff, uh, those gains are pretty easy to come by at first. So psychologically, take some comfort in that. You know, don't, don't try to rush it. And Whenever I'm working with a client and they want to train through something, whether it's a medical procedure or uh, you know a small injury or something like that, uh, it, it, what's the one phrase like uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Yeah. When it comes to training through stuff, sometimes just taking your foot off the gas pedal and really emphasizing the short-term recovery is such a better payoff over time, you know, and if you try to train through it and you nag it and you nag it and you continue to aggravate it, you, you create a really long-term annoyance that it would have been much better to just handle it on the front end, fully recover, get back into it, uh, phase in your training logically, uh, conservatively, and you, you just set yourself up for a much smoother process. You get yourself back to a hundred percent quicker. So, my general advice, of course, with specific timing, there's no way I'm going to tell you, oh, hernia, uh, hernia surgery, here's how many weeks. Like, I, I'm not qualified to do that. Uh, it would be reckless for me to do that. But you got to have a, a good nuanced conversation with your medical professional, and you, you should err on the side of caution just to make sure that you fully recover and heal and you don't create a long-term problem out of a short-term problem. Yeah, and just to toss something in there, since since I know we have a global audience and that uh, expression Eric used may not be uh, familiar to everyone, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, for our listeners outside of the U.S., uh, that is 28.3 grams of prevention is worth 0.454 kilograms of cure. Uh, so I, I hope that clears things up. Yeah, that, that actually is a better way to present it when you put it that way. <laughs> Okay, uh, David Allen asks, these may be dumb questions, but for lifters who have increasingly sporadic sleep schedules uh, through no fault of their own, what are some things to actually increase performance, recovery, and body composition? Are specific lengths of naps helpful? 
Uh, or is it just a matter of waiting until the next long slumber? Should you ever exercise while exhausted or sleep deprived? Yeah, so um, in general, uh, there, I mean, so th- this relates to uh, the first question I answered as well. Unfortunately, there's not great research uh, about the longitudinal effects of not sleeping enough on uh, especially performance and hypertrophy-based outcomes. Um, So as far as it goes for body composition, um, not sleeping enough does tend to increase weight gain and fat gain, likely through probably two dominant mechanisms. One is just self-control decreases when you're sleep deprived. And so, uh, and, uh, appetite regulation gets screwed up. So you probably just end up eating more and have a hard, a harder time keeping yourself from eating more. Uh, but then two, there's also some research showing that, um, your body's preferential fuel sources shift a little bit. So, uh, you go from at rest burning predominantly fat to burning a uh, slightly higher um, proportion of carbohydrate and protein, which is also uh, independently probably not a great thing for long-term body comp outcomes. Um, but I mean, as far as as far as stuff like that goes, you know, it, it's easy to just say like have more self-control. Um, but there are little things that you could do uh, in your life to maybe not require quite as much self-control if you're interested in this from a body comp perspective. Uh, the biggest is is probably just not having uh, especially high-calorie, hyper-palatable foods in the house and easily accessible. Because, I mean, you can overeat chicken breast and potatoes and white rice and... Uh, scrambled eggs and whatever else but you know if your self-control is nil because you're super sleep deprived uh it's hard to fall too far off the wagon if those are the options you have available to overeat um so you know that's a simple little thing you can do just try to shift your food environment a little bit to uh make it harder to fall entirely off the wagon if you know, if self-control decreases because you're very sleep deprived. When it comes to recovery and performance, I mean, I think the same basic rules still apply. Uh, Something that improves recovery when you are not sleep deprived will probably still improve recovery if you are sleep deprived. So uh, water immersion probably helps. Compression garments probably help. Uh, massage probably helps to some degree. I mean, just little things like that. Active recovery, going for a walk. Walks are still great if you're sleep deprived. Um, Honestly, I kind of love walks when I'm sleep deprived because you kind of feel like you're you're swimming through a strange unreality, and I think it's pretty sick. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, anything that enhances recovery probably enhances recovery independent of whether you're sleep deprived or not. Uh, and then then when it comes to performance and muscle specifically, uh, the question asks, you know, 
should you ever exercise while exhausted or sleep deprived? I think the two biggest considerations there are one, if you're very sleep deprived, it's probably not a great idea to do a lot of cardiovascular activity outside if it's very hot uh, because thermoregulation can be impaired if you're very sleep deprived. Um, and if you're sleep deprived enough that it is significantly affecting your motor control, it may not be a great idea to do really heavy or really high speed free weight stuff. So, you know, may not be a great idea to go for a max squat or a max clean and jerk or something like that, or, or even like really heavy or like fairly heavy and like really close to failure type stuff. If it's the type of thing where a lapse in motor control and losing control of the bar could have really negative consequences, maybe that's not the best option of things to do when sleep deprived. Uh, and there's also, um, there's evidence in team sport athletes that uh, non-contact soft tissue injury rates are higher when when athletes aren't sleeping enough. Uh, and that probably relates to some degree to lack of motor control as well. So, you know, uh, any sort of exercise that any sort of exercise slash loading combination that has a reasonably high chance of maybe causing a muscle strain or something like that, maybe not the best idea to do when you're really sleep deprived. But uh, what should be quite safe to do and what you can absolutely do and should do, I would say, if, if you're interested, especially in muscle-based outcomes, is just lighter kind of bodybuilder-style training. Hop on some machines, grab some dumbbells, uh, don't do anything super heavy. Um, like like uh, Trek said in answering another question, ultimately, resistance training is the primary stimulus for muscle and everything else is a distant second. One thing to note is that surveys of elite athletes in really pretty much every sport <laughs> suggest that most elite athletes don't sleep nearly as much as sleep experts would recommend. Um, and I mean, like a relatively sizable minority average less than six hours per night. Like it, it very well could be that, that like, ah, maybe if you're for whatever reason in a situation where you can only get like two hours per night, who knows, maybe you're just kind of dead in the water. Uh, but when most people talk about like, oh, I have a sporadic sleep schedule, you know, they may be talking about occasional all-nighters, nights that they occasionally get four or five hours per sleep and maybe can sleep more other nights, kind of averaging out to five or six hours of sleep per night. A lot of very, very successful athletes do sleep that little, which is not ideal, uh, but, you know, they're still able to train and make gains. So, you know, I, I would prioritize safety, again, because motor control will probably be compromised to some degree. Um, but yeah, like body build, bodybuilding style training, especially on machines, um, where just any sort of exercise where the, uh, <laughs> where the consequence of losing control of the implement is relatively minor. Yeah, you're, you're probably good to go. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'd recommend. Th this question also asked about naps. Um, 
And yeah, if, if you're really sleep deprived, naps can be helpful. Uh, I, I think that's one of those things where it's good to just know yourself and know how naps impact your ability to sleep at night. So some people, if you take a nap through the day that's longer than, say, 20 minutes, uh, that can negatively impact your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep uh, the upcoming night. And if that happens, maybe the naps are doing more harm than good. Uh, But especially if you are, again, quite sleep-deprived, that probably won't happen. And if you know from experience, like, hey, I can can get a sleep cycle in. I can take a 90-minute nap. Uh, I feel better when I wake up and it doesn't negatively impact my sleep, uh, the next night, then yeah, you can, you can get a longer nap in. And otherwise, like, uh, I I think a lot of people do recommend shorter naps just to kind of refresh yourself. Uh, so, you know, somewhere in the 20 to 30 minute range that, that should be, uh, pretty, pretty tolerable for most people in most contexts. But yeah, in general, I mean, keep training and, and, choose exercises that are particularly safe, I would say. Yeah, there is some evidence. We've covered it in mass a few times recently. There, there's some evidence that those short naps can have uh, a positive effect acutely on performance in participants who have been restricted uh, of their sleep. So, you know, the, the experimental in- intervention uh, requires participants to have very short sleep uh, a nap before exercise performance can be a positive thing. But like you said, it, it'd be really nice to see the, those types of studies take a multiple day approach where we then see how does that affect their sleep that night. And that, that would give a little bit of a better assessment of the overall pros and cons of that napping strategy. But, uh, but yeah, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, but just to get me through this next workout, should I nap or not? If we're viewing it in a vacuum, you know, in isolation, there there is some of the evidence there to suggest that napping can be a, a pretty helpful strategy. Um, okay, moving on to the next question. I've got one from Toby C. How do you spell Keith? With a C or a K? Might be Toby Keith. Uh, it's uh, a K. I know, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, not... What, what's Toby's last name on The Office? I have no idea. Okay. So either a, a country start, start music. Start talking. I'll, I'll get this. Yeah, it could be an office character. Could be a country music legend. We don't know. But Toby C uh, had a question about training hard. It's Flinderson. Oh, that's yeah. not it. Nope. So the question is, uh, how do we define training hard? Um, and then there's a bunch of other stuff, but that's pretty much the question. <laughs> yeah, how hard is is hard enough when it comes to training? Um, and this is something I know you were on Jeff Nippard's channel talking about this recently, um, but I, I haven't listened to that yet. What? I know. I, I figured you, I could just ask you. You don't consume all of the content that I put out? I, I don't. Unbelievable. Uh, I haven't yet, but I, I, I enjoy your content and I enjoy Jeff very much, so I'll get to it very soon. Uh, but I'd love to hear your answer uh, after I uh, take a stab at it here. So... I think there are a few ways to look at training hard. And I, I'm going to answer this from the, uh, you know, not, not the assumption that you want to, you know, go win nationals and powerlifting, but, you know, just the, the typical trainee who wants to maybe get stronger, uh, improve body composition, stuff like that. Uh, so, so the first thing to consider is your proximity to failure. I, I think that's one variable that often comes up when we have this discussion of how hard should I train? And, you know, coming from a bodybuilding background, 
it can be really hard to convince people that they will be okay if they train with an RIR of one or maybe two. But, uh, but you know, we, we shouldn't it's, always... It's those reps past failure that, <laughs> yeah. that really give you the gains. Yeah, the, the typical bodybuilding RP is about a... Or RIR, I should say, is about a negative five. Like, you should get those five reps where your spotter is just pulling the bar off of your chest. Um, but no, so I, I usually like to keep my reps and reserve values between zero and four uh, when, when I'm getting after it. On a deload, I might go... Uh, higher than four, of course. But in my my real training weeks, uh, when I'm doing my working sets, I like my reps and reserve values to be zero to four, approximately, meaning I have somewhere between zero and four repetitions left in the tank when I terminate the set. Uh, and I like to ramp up my compound exercises. So at the beginning of a training block, my reps and reserve values might be around a three or four. Uh, and then as the training block progresses, I work a little bit closer to failure. I do some more twos and some ones, and sometimes I get pretty close to failure, uh, depending on the exercise. You know, some exercises, I never really push them that close to failure. Um, but with plenty of exercises, you can do that, uh, with a high confidence level that, you know, you're not going to hurt yourself or do anything that's unsafe or anything like that. So, uh, another thing to consider aside from proximity to failure is, the overall amount of volume that, that you're doing within a program. And I, I usually, you know, start out with making sure I have enough volume just to make sure that I keep my gains moving forward, continuing to make strides in the right direction. And sometimes you've got a sufficient amount of volume. You notice that your your gains are starting to taper off a little bit, but you know you're not really, you know, at your genetic ceiling, at your limit. And you say, okay, it might be, time to incorporate a little bit more total training volume into the training week here. Um, and, you know, what, what I tend to find is for, for a lot of people at first, we can keep pushing pretty well uh, with, with a pretty low to moderate amount of volume, a very tolerable amount of volume, keeping those reps in reserve uh, in that zero to four range. And we can extend some pretty long training blocks before we feel like we really have to take a deload and rest up and dive into the next training block. Uh, but usually once you get past your kind of introductory phase to lifting, if your reps and reserves are staying between uh, zero and four, if you've got enough volume to keep things moving forward, a lot of times you'll tend to find that you do need a deload from time to time. You know, you just start to accumulate some of that fatigue subjectively over time. And, and you can kind of feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty beat up. I'm pretty fatigued here. I've been pushing it hard for a while. I need to take a, a deload here, rest up for a week, and then start a new block of training. Uh, and, and so a lot of times when I'm talking with intermediate or advanced trainees, if they're like, you know what, I'm, I'm keeping my reps and reserve values in the right range, um, but things seem really stagnant in terms of my gains. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll pry a little bit and see like, how frequently do you feel like you really need a deload? And sometimes the answer is like almost never. And I think it, it can be helpful to experiment with maybe ramping up the training volume in that scenario and seeing if maybe you just weren't doing enough and you had a little bit, you know, you, you could have pushed a little bit more on a week to week basis. Um, but it, it's hard to say exactly how much volume a person needs, but sometimes I do like to experiment with cranking things up a little bit. And what we'll find is, oh yeah, a little more volume 
allowed me to tap into some better gains here. But after five or six weeks of that, I did feel like I needed a deload. That probably means that we weren't quite doing enough and maybe needed to do a little bit more. Uh, and that's going to change over time as, as your training status changes as a lifter. So it's hard to give a really tight, concise answer to that question, but that's my approach to proximity to failure and also my approach to just the overall amount of training that we're doing in the program. Yeah, I, I would say uh, the only real scientific answer here is uh, harder than last time, uh, and that's that's all I got. Perfect. Is that what you told Jeff? Uh, that, that's, yeah, some, that's what A, A Greg told him. Uh <laughs> No, I, I largely agree with what you said. Um, yeah, I, I think that in general, um, your your body's feedback is what tells you how hard you're training, uh, and, and the the threshold for what you know might be considered hard is probably different for different people. Uh, I think that there's there's feedback you can get when you're done with a training session. Uh, and also over time. So as far as over time goes, I, I largely agree with what Trek said. I think that um, you know, if you never feel like you need a deload, you probably can be training a bit harder. If you feel like you need to deload after two weeks of training, you're probably pushing it too hard. Uh, but you know, if you're training with a, a given level of rep, reps in reserve and total training volume, and you feel like you need a deload every eh, maybe four to eight weeks, give or take. You know, you're you're just kind of training along, and after around that period of time, you're like, yeah, I'm feeling a little worn down. I, I probably need to take it easy for a week. Uh, I think that's a good indication that your training is generally hard enough. Um, and on a shorter time scale, I think when you when you leave the gym, you can get valuable feedback from that as well. If you feel like you just, you know, need to peel yourself off the floor, um, and when you're walking out to the parking lot, you're you're thinking to yourself, "I really don't know that I'm safe to drive right now." Uh, you probably pushed it a little bit too hard, uh, but if you're still completely fresh, and you know you're leaving the gym with more energy than you entered it with, uh, you you probably didn't train hard enough. Uh, to be clear, there are times you would want to do that. Like if you're doing an active recovery session or something like that, uh, or even just like during a deload week, ideally you do want to leave the gym feeling better than you did when you entered it. Um, but you probably shouldn't be doing active recovery or deload style training for 90% of your training. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're feeling fatigued, um, your performance is has obviously decreased, but it hasn't fallen off a cliff and you don't feel like, again, you have to just be peeled off the floor of the gym. Uh, that's, I think, a, a pretty decent indication that your, your training is appropriate. I also think sleep is a pretty good indicator. Um, this is purely subjective, but I think that if you're training, if, if when you're training, your sleep is better. You fall asleep easier. You feel like you're sleeping more soundly. You're waking up feeling refreshed. I think that's a, a pretty good indication that the 
uh, overall intensity and difficulty of your training is is probably appropriate. Um, if it's negatively impacting your sleep, you're probably pushing it a little bit too hard. So I, I think that just kind of subjective assessment of sleep uh, is another pretty decent indicator of of how hard you're training. I didn't even think of the sleep one, but that's a good one um, because, yeah, I, I've noticed my sleep is really sensitive. If, if I'm not training, I sleep like crap. If I'm training well, I sleep great. But then if I push it a little too much, it starts to impair sleep a little bit. Uh, one caveat, though, I agree with everything you said, but uh, if you are a physique athlete late in prep, none of that stuff applies anymore because, <laughs> like, when I'm like really late in prep, I have to peel myself off of every surface to do every task in the day. Like, so peeling yourself off the gym floor, like late in prep is probably going to be the reality. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and, and sleep disruption is absolutely going to be the reality. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about like normal, healthy adults. Yes. I, yes. I classify being four weeks out from a physique show as a uh, physiologically pathological condition. It is. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to, uh, <laughs> what I don't want to see is, you know, a bunch of people who are like doing a bodybuilding prep who are like, Oh, I listened to this podcast and it said, if I feel lethargic, I should train less. And like, no, you're, you're lethargic. Cause, uh, you know, you're 5% body fat. So, uh, just wanted to throw that in there for all the, the bodybuilders listening along. Uh, okay, Greg, you've got one from Evan Gleaves here. I do. So Evan asks uh, if, and, and this is this is one that uh, I think you would probably have good feedback on as well. So just for for uh, complete transparency, my process of selecting questions to answer in Q and A segments of the podcast is uh, I, I post threads both in the Stronger by Science community uh, Facebook group and the Stronger by Science subreddit. And unless there's just a really, really dumb question, uh, I just snag the most highly liked or upvoted questions. Um, and so this one I, I think is probably more in Trex's wheelhouse, but you know I, I'm trying to give the people what they want, so I, I'll take a swipe at it. Uh, so Evan asks, if you find yourself at your calorie goal for the day, but way below your protein goal, uh, should you eat the extra calories to get your protein or avoid... Or avoid going over your calorie goal by hundreds. Uh, what if this happens often? Exclude obvious situations like a dreamer bulk. So basically, um, you know, if you have a calorie allotment you're trying to hit for the day, uh, and you also have a protein goal you're trying to hit for the day, and you hit your calorie goal uh, well before you hit your protein goal, should you just eat more protein to meet your protein goal if that? also involves going over your calorie goal. So I, I think first and foremost, uh, and this question also asks, what if this is happening frequently? So I think first and foremost, the like the, the big brain approach is to try to make sure it's not happening frequently. So, you know, if you're, say, if your calorie goals are so low that to eat a diet you find at all palatable, uh, you're consuming enough fat and carbs that you're hitting your your calorie goal well before your protein goal. Um, you know that might suggest that your total calorie intake is so low that you're just gonna have a really really tough time sticking to the diet. So if if it's really low because you're in a big calorie deficit, 
maybe try cutting at a slower rate so you can just get some more calories in your diet and have an easier time hitting your protein goal while staying within your calorie allotment for the day. Uh, or, you know, it, it may be a matter of changing uh, the foods you're eating or like food behavior. So, you know, if if something like that is happening often because you know, maybe you're not meal prepping and, you know, not everyone has to meal prep, but I think that's a common strategy just because it does make eating well, uh, more frictionless, I guess, because you already have stuff that more or less meets your macros ready to go. Uh, or, you know, m maybe you're just not planning ahead particularly well. So, uh, you're not say packing a lunch when you go to work, uh, and then when it's lunchtime, you could either drive 20 minutes to a place that makes some healthy food and get that, or you could get something less healthy out of a vending machine or, you know, not necessarily less healthy, but just, you know, higher carbs, higher fat, less protein. Uh, th that could be a, a situation that you could remedy just by planning a little bit better and, and maybe packing your lunch. So, you know, look to see one that your total calorie goal is appropriate and something that you you have a decent chance of being able to stick to. Uh, two, if the total calorie target isn't uh, inappropriately low, look at some of those other behaviors, food environment type things, and try to modify those so that you do have a, a better chance of meeting your protein goal uh, before your calorie goal. Three, make sure your protein intake uh, target is something that's pretty feasible. So, you know, if uh, I think like the kind of standard middle of the range uh, protein goal that, that most people tell you to aim for is somewhere around 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass, uh, which, you know, can scale up higher, uh, certainly if you're in a calorie deficit. But if you're someone who has just always eaten really high protein and maybe your protein target is like 2.5 grams per kilo or something like that. Uh, maybe just bring your protein target down uh, <laughs> and then it's going to be more more feasible to hit on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, if, if your protein intake is absurdly high and you're having a hard time hitting it before you go over your, your calorie allotment for the day, uh, and there's some wiggle room on the on the lower end where you can drop it from 2.4, 2.5 to 1.6, 1.7, and maybe drop it to 1.6, 1.7. Um, so anyway, on the front end, before even addressing the question, look to make sure that that your uh, your eating behavior and your macro targets and total calorie targets are things that are feasible and will be doable most of the time. If they're not doable most of the time, if this is a problem that you're consistently running into, um, I would say the issue is more of that back-end stuff. Uh, either inappropriate calorie targets, inappropriate protein targets, or just um, food and eating behaviors that are going to make sticking with any diet pretty challenging. Uh, so assuming all of that is taken care of and it's just a one-time situation, so or you know something that maybe happens once a week but not crazy frequently, uh, you've you've hit your calorie goal for the day but you have protein left over. What do you do? Do you eat more protein even if that means going over your calorie goal? 
So I think ultimately, if it's something that happens very rarely, like, you know, once a month or something like that, it doesn't matter. It'll be fine either way. You go over your calories by 200 for a day uh, over the course of a multi-week, multi-month diet. You're not even going to notice that. Or if you fall way below your protein goal one day, it's also not going to make that much of a difference. So if it's something that's happening very rarely, eh, just be chill, you know? Um, that, <laughs> that would be my recommendation. If it's something that is happening somewhat more frequently, then I think it's worth keeping your overall goals in mind. So, you know, if, if you're in a calorie deficit, my kind of default knee-jerk reaction is that, like, you do need the protein to help maintain lean mass. Uh, and unless you're just in a super, super, super cons- conservative deficit, uh, I I think there's probably more wiggle room and a lower cost of going a little bit over your calories one day to make sure you're getting an adequate protein. So, you know, let's say you're trying to lose a pound a week. Uh, cumulative calorie deficit of about 3,500 calories. If you have to go over 200 calories one day to hit your protein target, and so now your cumulative weekly deficit is 3,300 calories, that'll be fine. Uh, I think in a situation like that, it probably does make more sense to go over a little bit to try to hit your protein goal. Um, If you're in a surplus, it kind of just depends on what your philosophy is there. If, you know, if you're kind of doing a dirty bulk, like whatever, what's another couple hundred calories to hit your protein goal? If you're trying to do more of a like quote unquote lean bulk, um, you know, you're already in a surplus protein's not quite as precious, you know, maybe stay 30, 40 grams under your protein target and don't go crazy with the calories. But, uh, again, ultimately I think that this is, more indicative of a bigger problem. Because like I said, if if this is something that only happens once in a blue moon, like once a month, say, it's really not going to matter. You can go either way you want. It's not going to it's not going to make that much of a difference. If it's something that is happening pretty frequently, then look at total calorie intake, look at total protein intake, look at your approach to dieting, your approach to eating and uh, make make adjustments or corrections at that level to make sure that this isn't a problem that comes up frequently. Yeah, I agree that uh, the the biggest point is if it's super rare, it probably doesn't matter. And if it's super common, uh, no answer here is going to be sufficient. You have to address the, the root of that problem. But for stuff in the middle, my perspective differs a little bit. Um, you know, I think one of the most frustrating things working with one-on-one clients is when a client says, man, I've been sticking to this diet for a long time and the scale is just not moving in the right direction. You know, it, it's not going at the, the rate I was hoping. Uh, so I, I try to avoid that as much as I can, even if it's at the expense of having lower protein for a day or two here or there. I try to make sure, you know, if, if I'm working with somebody and the, the goal unequivocally without question is losing weight and fat mass over time. Um, I try to make sure that we maintain our deficit as consistently as we can. Uh, So it's just two different ways of looking at the same conundrum, which is something's got to give here. 
And what I usually, I, I usually kind of classify it based on what goal is most pressing at the moment. And so if, if we're doing a really focused weight loss phase, then I say, you know what, one day of protein being a little bit lower, like I'm assuming we're not talking about, yeah, I'm, I'm at 30% of my protein recommendation for today. Like if we're getting up to 70, 80% of what we were supposed to get, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable saying, let's keep our deficit where it is. We'll go a little lower on the protein today. We'll live to fight another day. And, you know, we, we see people who, uh, you know, as fasting becomes more, more common and more, uh, popularized, we see people who go a full day without protein if relatively frequently. And it's not, not my ideal approach to nutrition, but you know, it, they're okay. I mean, you can get away with having a low protein day here and there. Uh, same thing goes on the other side of the spectrum. If I've got somebody who they're like, listen, I don't care if I gain a little fat here, but I need to support hypertrophy by any means necessary. For that particular individual, I say, well, then fine. Obviously, the, the conclusion is very simple. Get your protein in. If we go over calories, it's no big deal. The tricky scenario in my mind is the person who's in between, who's trying to get the best of both worlds, who maybe is trying to bulk in a really lean way, or maybe is trying to recomp, is trying to lose some fat as they gain muscle, and they want the best of both worlds. What I would say for that individual is maybe consider splitting the difference, right? So if you're way off your protein goal for the day, and getting to your protein goal is going to you know, put you 200, 250 calories over, what if we eat our way up to about 85, 90% of our protein target for the day and just kind of split the difference. So instead of hitting the target and going 250 over, we get closer to the target, but we don't go quite as far over on our calories. So there, there is a middle ground there where you could say, you know what, let's hit 85, 90% of the protein target with the leanest protein source we can find. And we've learned a good lesson and tomorrow we'll go about our meal planning a little bit differently. So you know, your perspective was a little bit different than mine. Neither is inherently more correct. It really comes down to what is the absolute top priority, right? And so for, for you, you, you have a great point that if someone's in a big deficit, we have to be extra mindful of lean mass losses, right? So you, you could very easily justify saying, hey, we got to get that protein in and one higher calorie day whatever, we'll call it a refeed, we're good to go. So th there's no better or worse, right or wrong here. It's just a matter of perspective and how we stack those priorities. And I tell you what, if, if I'm working with somebody who's dieting and, and they they really want to lose weight, but they are obsessive about, we cannot lose an ounce of muscle on this cut, I'm going with your approach. Uh, you know, the, the I'm just going to say, get your protein in, we'll have a higher calorie day. So it well, depends uh, on the goal. And I mean, it, it's ultimately a matter of, making sure that this is a sometimes conundrum other rather than an often conundrum. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it shouldn't be something that's a big problem. It shouldn't be recurring regularly. Yeah. And so by definition, whichever strategy you take shouldn't be critical because we're talking about a couple days a month where this really comes up. Yeah. If you're overall adhering pretty well, and this is a rare thing, there are really no bad options. Uh, and if it's coming up all the time, there are really no good options. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got a question from I Love Greg Eric, one of my favorite listeners, to be honest. Uh, the question is, 
how do you employ periodization for the compound lifts to enhance uh, bodybuilding progress? Um, so this is a good question. I think my answer might maybe surprise some people, but I don't think that really sophisticated periodization is critical for bodybuilding purposes. Um, and, you know, you have to manage your training variables. So like, you know, there, there is some nuance to the programming to some extent, but I, I don't think it's really critical to have this kind of 52 week uh, plan where, where you're really drastically altering these variables because the goal is pretty, uh, pretty straightforward, right? We, if you're a bodybuilder, you probably don't need a, a whole phase of training that's focused on, you know, building strength in the eccentric phase of lifts. You probably don't need a whole phase of training that's dedicated to, uh, you know, increasing explosive power uh, at high velocities of contraction. Like the goal is to build muscle. And so pretty much across the year, 52 weeks a year, we're trying to uh, apply tension to the muscle to help it grow and do that in a way that is basically efficient and, and not excessively time-consuming or burdensome. Well, yeah, I mean, when you look at, uh, like, rationales for periodization, it's gener- the whole concept is basically like, okay, let's break down what the needs are for a particular sport, what training aims we're trying to accomplish, and split things up into blocks that can help us accomplish each of those aims in a logical, sequential pattern. And one of the aims that a lot of athletes in a lot of sports will have is like, hey, in the off-season, let's try to build some muscle. Uh, so, okay, you're going to have a, a block dedicated to hypertrophy training with, you know, other things taking a back seat and only being sprinkled in here and there. But if you think about bodybuilding training, uh, you know, f- f- first first month of the year uh, or, of, or of your competition cycle, what's the goal of that block going to be? Hypertrophy. Okay, okay. So we're done with our hypertrophy mesocycle. Next mesocycle. What, uh, what, what are we going to build on that hypertrophy block, uh, to logically move forward in a sequence of training blocks? Oh, we're going to do more hypertrophy because that's the whole, that's the whole fucking sport. So, uh, I, I, I feel like if you asked this to a bodybuilding.com writer in 2008, uh, or a, uh, a big time like NSCA devotee, they would have a very long answer for you. And I feel like if you ask this to a periodization theorist, uh, like, you know, if you hit up Vladimir Asurin and said, hey, how should I periodize my training for bodybuilding? They'd probably just laugh at you because they'd be like, bodybuilding's not a sport. You don't have multiple physical capacities you're trying to develop. You're trying to get big. Uh, why periodize? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, but like I said, you still have to manage your training variables. You're not just going to like put together a block of training and say, I'm going to do this for the next 75 weeks. Right. So as I've stated previously in this episode, keeping the reps and reserve values between zero and four, generally ramping them down as you go. So increasing your proximity to failure, um, especially for the compound lifts, you, you probably don't have to be as aggressive with, you know, having high reps in reserve for your isolation work early in a block. Tricep extensions, bicep curls, lateral raises, you can probably push those relatively close to failure even early in the training block and not have to really move them around too much. 
But you know, if you're training hard uh, with the right amount of volume, every month, every two months, maybe every third month, you're going to need a deload at some point. You know, whether it's at four, six, eight, ten weeks, probably going to need a deload. Uh, and after your deload, you're probably going to notice that some programming variables require changing. So during your last training block, maybe you improved some weak areas that you were focusing on, and so now the uh, the squeaky wheel that needs more attention has changed from block to block, and you might shift emphasis to something else. I know that was my big thing before I did my first competition. I was like, I just need one more training block to get my chest bigger, and then I'll be ready to go. And it would work, and then I'd be like, well, one more training block to bring up my lats, and then I'll be ready. And, but you, you can see block to block that that thing changes, and it, it can be a, a pretty if that's the thing that's delaying you from competing, you may never compete. <laughs> that's, that was the cycle I was getting in. But um, anyway, you're going to see that different areas need emphasis. You're going to change your training around. You might have some staleness, uh, lack of varieties that, that might cause you to tweak some perform, uh, some some training variables, uh, which is totally justifiable. You should enjoy your training. If you're not enjoying it, you probably ought to be changing something to make sure that you enjoy it more, um, unless you're a professional athlete and you just got to get your training in. Um, there is some argument about whether or not adding in some strength work here and there, uh, might have benefit for hypertrophy. Um, that research, uh, Greg, I know you've written about it in mass. What's your current take? Should a bodybuilder have a focused strength block? I am a strength skeptic. Okay. Skeptical of the concept of strength. Um, but yeah, so some people say, oh, a bodybuilder, you got to alternate between, strength-focused phases and hypertrophy-focused phases? Uh, probably not, but if you find the strength-focused phases to be enjoyable, you can configure them in a way that is absolutely very suitable for hypertrophy. You know, you, you just have to tweak your set and rep schemes a little bit. Um, it might not be the most time-efficient way to train, but you can do some strength work in a way that still has a great hypertrophy stimulus if you design it appropriately. Um, now, when it comes to periodization... The one area where I think you could make an argument is when you're transitioning from the off-season into prep. I think you could argue not necessarily that the training goals change, but that your physical capacity uh, for training changes a little bit. Uh, so deeper into a prep, cardio is likely to be increased or physical, you know, non-lifting physical activity. That's something that might be factored into your management of resistance training variables. And another thing that factors in is that you're going to be in a big caloric deficit, low body fat, probably low carbohydrate, uh, especially toward the end. And so you might tr trend toward some higher intensity, lower volume work uh, later in that, uh, that process. You might alter your repetition scheme so that they're not squarely in the, the glycolytic sweet spot. Um, and this is, you know, there's not strong direct evidence for these exact, uh, alterations to your training, but from a practical perspective, if you're really glycogen depleted as just a constant state because of your dietary demands, uh, and you're noticing that you thought you could do 15 reps and after eight, you're just done. It, it might be an indicator that you should focus a little more effort on some of the, uh, lower repetition schemes and just, Stop trying to fight an energy system battle that you are not equipped to win at that point in time. So later in a prep, I do drop a little bit of my accessory work because of the additional cardio and physical activity. I drop some of my extra sets. 
I I start to lean toward or gravitate towards some higher loads with uh, with lower repetition numbers, um, j- just to make sure that your training is compatible with what you're physically and physiologically ready to to actually handle. You you want to you want to mitigate uh, the potential downsides of the the restriction that you're doing. You want to make sure that you're uh, altering your programming variables. To, to really adequately match what you're fueled to do in the gym uh, and what you have the ability to recover from. So that, that's really the extent of what I would consider periodization as it pertains to, to bodybuilding. Makes sense to me. All right. Uh, your reindeer, we're, we're moving from Facebook to Reddit. Your reindeer asks, uh, if ethics and money were no concern, what's a study you'd love to see? Um, so there, there were comments under this, uh, anticipating that I would take this to a very dark place. So I'm going to start by giving the people what they want, and then I'm going to give my real answer, which isn't a particularly dark answer. So uh, the dark answer, if um, it, it, an open question, which I think I lean against scientific consensus on, is... Uh, an open question is whether skeletal muscle hyperplasia occurs in humans. And the reason that's an open question is the way you go about studying hyperplasia in animals. Is, and so, by the way, uh, just terminology, hypertrophy is the growth of muscle fibers and hyperplasia is adding more muscle fibers. Uh, and it's commonly believed that in humans, hyperplasia doesn't occur, at least during adulthood. Um and the increase in, in skeletal muscle size due to resistance training is due purely to skeletal muscle hypertrophy. Uh, the reason I think hyperplasia occurs in humans is it has it occurs in every other animal we've tried to find it in. Uh, happens in birds, happens in cats, happens in mice. Uh, when we do anything that resembles a resistance training stimulus in other vertebrates, uh, skeletal muscle hyperplasia occurs. I really just don't see a good reason why it wouldn't occur in humans, but it hasn't been observed. And the reason it hasn't been observed is there's really not a good way to count muscle fibers with uh, with the muscle intact. And so in animals, what that means is you put them through some sort of protocol. Maybe it's something mimicking resistance training. Maybe it's weighted stretching in the case of the bird studies. Um and then you euthanize the animal, you remove the muscle, and you count the fibers. Uh, you can't really do that in humans because ethics are a thing. Um, but, I mean, you know, if, if the people want me to take it dark, you could do this in humans without killing the humans by finding people who would be willing to volunteer to have a limb amputated for the sake of science or just have a, a muscle completely excised for the sake of science. Uh, where, you know, you have some people, they do some training, uh, you know, maybe like calf training possibly just so it's not going to impact their activities of daily living too, too much. Uh, you know, take the leg at the knee, uh, and then see whether the, the total number of calf fibers has increased. Uh, and this also asks if money was no concern, money would definitely be a concern for that study because, it apparently takes hours and hours and hours to count 
fibers in just like a tiny little muscle in mice. If you're counting every muscle fiber in a human gastroc, who buddy, good fucking luck. Uh, especially if you have a, a reasonable sample size. So anyway, that would be a very unethical study that would uh, allow you to get a pretty definitive answer to uh, what is at the moment an open question and seems like it will be an open question for the foreseeable future uh, in terms of whether hyperplasia occurs in humans. Um, in terms of what I would actually want to see, probably my number 1A study, is I would just want to see a very, very intense exploratory study where um, you have a really, really big sample size. Um, ideally, you'd uh, include twins and you'd have siblings and you'd have people in similar families. So you could look at some genetic stuff. Uh I'd like to see a within-subject unilateral design and maybe like multiple different sets of training programs used in people because, again, I'm, I'm assuming we have a sample size in the hundreds at least. And so, you know, maybe you can test a grand total of eight programs or four sets of two programs to see uh, variability in individual responses to different training stimuli um, and just collect all of the data, all of it. Uh, look at genetic stuff, look at epigenetic stuff, look at protein markers, look at gene expression, um, look at metabolomics. I heard that I mispronounced that in a previous episode. I said metabolomics. Uh, I've never heard that word said before. I'd only read it. That is my excuse. Uh, but yeah, just, just everything. Um, because currently, uh, we, we still don't know in detail, down to just like the finest, nittiest, grittiest detail, um, all of the processes that bring about and influence muscle growth and strength gains. And, you know, ultimately, I think if we had a full mechanistic understanding of that entire process, that would help guide future research to make it better and to help people ask more interesting questions that maybe at the moment with our current knowledge we wouldn't even think to ask. Uh, so I, I think just like a massive, massive exploratory study where you can just throw everything in the kitchen sink at it to um, learn more about mechanisms and uh, generate more hypotheses based on just the sheer amount of data you're able to gather. Look for uh, things that might mediate whether someone responds to one style of training better versus another style of training. I, I think that that would just move the whole field forward 20 years. Uh, and so that that is honestly the the type of study that I'd like to see if uh, if money were no concern. How about you, Trex? Uh, my only feedback is that when we ventured out into this space of creating audio content, the one challenge that I didn't even think of was the fact that so many of the words I use in my brain, I have only read and never heard. <laughs> and so, no, many, same, same. so many of the words I use in my writing, I have read and never actually heard. Um, and I, I was fully unprepared for that, which is why we mispronounce almost every word on our podcast. Uh, maybe other people are using these words, but I, I don't consume a lot of content. Uh, and so, yeah, I, 
I have no idea how to say anything that's in my mind, which is a really hard place to be. Yeah, it, it'll shock you to hear, dear listener, that when the mics aren't rolling, me and Trex aren't just like sitting around talking about metabolomics. We are not. Um, all right, moving on. I've got. Oh, a, do, do you not have a, a dream study? Um, I, I feel like this was a question for both of us. A dream study. Uh, well, I, I agree with your general approach that I, I think if we're trying to get a lot of bang for our buck, a big exploratory study that is really well conducted would be great. Um, one study that I would really love to see, uh, I might as well just, there's two very small questions that, uh, have been bothering me for a while. Um, actually I'll give three. First of all, uh, the creatine caffeine interaction. Uh, there was a study just a couple months ago that I covered in mass that was perfectly designed to address it. Uh, but COVID really threw a wrench in the plan and the, the sample size just wasn't there. But it's one of those questions where the general consensus is don't worry about it. And that consensus is absolutely not based on the data that have been provided to date. Um, and if you want a nuanced take on how I feel about it, strongerbyscience.com slash creatine. I have a whole section kind of detailing um, my views on it. Another one is... I think there's a lot of interesting preliminary data suggesting that a combination of dietary nitrate and citrulline uh, should be a pretty nice, pretty cost-effective strategy for people who want to build strength and muscle. I, I think aiming for a high nitrate diet with citrulline supplementation about an hour before workouts should be a good way to promote training adaptations and hypertrophy uh, over time. Uh, unfortunately, the, the few studies that have actually tried to look at hypertrophy within that context, the training programs just weren't well suited for inducing hypertrophy. And uh, in, in one case, the nitrate dosage uh, that was provided, just looking at nitrate alone, uh, wasn't sufficient. And actually, the one looking at citrulline alone, uh, the citrulline dose also was insufficient. It was very, very low. Uh, and so it's one of those things that it's almost more frustrating when somebody kind of starts to look at it but doesn't um you know doesn't kind of put all of that together into a, a singular uh, cohesive approach where you've got a sufficient hypertrophy stimulus and a sufficient dosage uh, of both of those ingredients so i'd like to see that one other thing i'd like to see is uh i'd like to see more experimental work uh really trying to precisely identify optimal protein intakes in caloric surpluses versus caloric deficits. And I'd like to see those, uh, those recommendations um, maybe more generalizably scaled. Uh, if generalizably, that's a clunky word, not sure if it exists. But, you know, one of the things that kind of drives me nuts is that a lot of the protein recommendations are grams per kilogram of total body mass. And when you get to more extreme ranges of the body composition spectrum, I struggle to believe that that's the best way to scale it. Uh, and so I'd like to see uh, more studies looking at optimal protein dosages, both in caloric surpluses and caloric deficits, um, with a, a very broad range of body composition with regards to the participants, so that we can really hone in on the best way to scale that recommendation across the spectrum of, of body composition. I feel like that wouldn't be a problem if open data was a thing. Uh, oh, no, it'd be solved uh, literally in about 25 minutes. 
Yeah, uh, th- that actually jogged my memory. Uh, another area where I'd love to see research where shockingly there isn't any uh, is one of the things people talk about a lot is how should you train in a deficit? Like ultimately something's got to give, uh, you know, as you're losing weight, probably going to lose some lean mass as well. Performance is probably going to go down. Uh, so is it better to try to uh, maintain training volume and sacrifice intensity or try to maintain intensity and sacrifice volume? There's a lot of people out there with some really, really strong takes on the topic and there is precisely zero data on the topic. Uh, that is an area that wide open research question, no research whatsoever. Uh, and I, I'd love to see a study on that. Definitely. You, you could go on and on because, I mean, at, at the end of each of our mass articles, we basically say, hey, please do this study. And so every topic that I've written about, I've got like <laughs> I've got a recommendation I could lean on. But those are the ones that came to, to top of mind for me. Um, okay, I've got a question here from Fictional Funkness, um, and it relates to body fat percentage. So uh, how does an excessively low body fat percentage affect your ability to improve strength and increase hypertrophy over time? Uh, part two of the question is, given the poor reliability of most body fat measurement devices, what's the best way to ensure that an individual is in the appropriate range for a given training goal? Uh, so first of all, when you've got a really, really low body fat, so, you know, talking about females who have a body fat percentage, you know, under maybe 12 or 13%, talking about males who have a body fat percentage below, you know, maybe seven or 8%, uh, when, when we start getting close to, you know, essential body fat stores, um, you know, so it, when, when we're getting really lean, like physique competition ready, uh, gains are hard to come by. Uh, on the strength side, they're hard to come by because it's hard to really muster up uh, the energy uh, and the physiological... Uh, it, it's just hard to make good training sessions happen. I don't really know how else to describe it. Uh, recovery is impacted. Um, you know, when, when you're that lean, uh, your leverages feel weird uh, for the exercises that you're training. Uh, glycogen starts to become an issue where you're trying to drive through those difficult reps and there's just not a lot of uh, ATP getting generated in a timely fashion. Um, it, it's just really hard to, to, to make really notable strength gains, assuming that you uh, were already strong and in a well-trained state uh, before you lost the weight. Now, if you're totally untrained and you you know, diet down and you're not exercising and you get very, very, very lean and then you start lifting, of course, uh, you know, you're, you're going to, I would assume, uh, have some pretty notable strength gains just from the, uh, the, the abrupt neuromuscular adaptations that come with dramatically improving your training status in a short period of time. But if you're someone who's already strong, already has a lot of those neurological and neuromuscular training adaptations in place, it's really hard to make dramatic strength gains when you're at a very, very low body fat percentage. Uh, it's hard to generate high quality workouts uh, to muster up the energy for it, and it's hard to recover from session to session. Um, on the hypertrophy side, it, it's again very, very difficult to to induce notable hypertrophy when you're that lean. Um, 
frankly, because your your biological resources are diverted elsewhere. Um, it, it's really remarkable to see how your body slows down and allocates energy when you get down to those low body fat percentages, things you wouldn't expect. So like, uh, for example, I cut my hair less frequently when I'm prepping for bodybuilding shows. My hair grows slower. Uh, I, I, I don't have to trim my, my fingernails as frequently. Like everything starts to slow down in your body. Uh, and so you can see that reallocation of biological resources. And so the idea that you're going to be at five or 6% body fat and just humming along and, you know, creating all sorts of additional muscle tissue, adding all sorts of body protein, it's just not a realistic expectation. And uh, when we were looking at the data, when we were doing the P ratio analysis, uh, it, it, it did look like there was a bit of a cutoff where people... People under about 8% body fat, uh, and in that case, it would have all been, I believe, males down uh, in the sub, you know, in the single digits. I don't think there were any females in that data set uh, with body fat percentages uh, down that low. But looking at the data in total, I don't think there were any individuals making really substantial gains in lean mass under about 8% body fat, uh, which, which tracks pretty well with practical experience. Um, so yeah, it, it's very, very difficult. The, the only way you're going to really make notable strength gains, if you're maintaining a super lean body composition, especially if you had to diet to get down there and it's not just your natural body weight, um, the strength gains is just going to, it's, it's going to depend on you being pretty untrained beforehand and then just getting some of those beginner training adaptations. Uh, same thing goes for muscularity. If it's going to happen, it's going to be because you had a pretty low, uh, degree of muscularity and pretty minimal muscle mass at the start. And we're just making some of those beginner gains. But uh, for, for the typical trainee who's been at it for a while, very hard to come by. Uh, now, the other part of the question was, given the, the poor reliability of, of body comp measurement, how, how can you ensure that you're in the appropriate range for your training goal? Uh, and I really don't, I don't view it as a measurement issue. Um, certainly the reliability and the validity of body comp instrumentation is a notable concern in some cases. But with this, uh, the reason I don't think it's a measurement issue is because everybody's lower threshold is a little bit different. So some people don't really start to feel a lot of the crappy aspects of being lean until they're, you know, 5% body fat. Other people start to feel it when they're up around six or seven. Some people may be at eight or nine. You know, everybody's got a slightly different number below which they start to say, okay, I'm really feeling the fact that I'm lean right now and my energy availability is low. So I, even if we had uh, really good body comp measurements, I don't think that number is going to generalize perfectly from person to person. So rather than relying on a body, body fat percentage measurement, I think it's much more important to go by feel. And when you're there, when you're in that position where you're in a truly physiologically altered state because of leanness, you're going to know. You're going to feel it when you're there. Uh, it's going to impact your recovery. It's going to impact uh, your ability to muster up that energy for a training session. Uh, you might notice other things that come with it, uh, you know, increased hunger, uh, you might be a little bit more cold throughout the day. Uh, just a bunch of other little things that can give you an indication that your body's like, okay, we're starting to get some of those neuroendocrine effects of being lean. So I think that's a much more appropriate indicator rather than relying on a body fat measurement uh, of any kind. All right. 
Uh, Astrup asks, what are some fitness topics where your opinion is firmly against the common wisdom and why? So, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I am going to reject the premise of this question uh, insofar as the the idea that there is common wisdom in fitness. Uh, I think that what people perceive to be, quote unquote, common wisdom is incredibly niche specific and people uh, underestimate the degree to which what is perceived to be common wisdom, uh, shared knowledge, etc., within their specific niche really just does not generalize to, uh, you know, everyone within the fitness community. Um, so, for example, uh, the the first thing that came to mind for me was stretching. Uh, I'm I'm a big stretching head. I think it's good stuff. Uh, static stretching, dynamic stretching, PNF, all of it. My favorite, though, is static stretching, which might be the most maligned of all. Um, and uh, the, the reason that my opinion is firmly against the common wisdom within my niche uh, is that I think people have, one, just come to a completely erroneous understanding of the chronic effects of stretching, and two, I think they're... Uh, over-reliant on acute studies that uh, may not generalize quite as well as they think they do. So uh, as far as the acute stuff goes, there's evidence showing if you do fairly intense stretching for fairly long duration, immediately before you assess uh, maximum velocity, maximum power output, maximum force output, uh, that can decrease maximal velocity, maximal power output, maximal force output. Uh, and so people say like, ah, well, you definitely don't want to do this before training, but you know, uh, th- you have to keep experimental models in mind. It's really intense stretching or for really long durations, and you're doing it immediately before your performance test. Uh, other research has shown if you do that stretching and then you do any sort of like active warm up or just general warm up that lasts for more than like 10 minutes or so, performance goes back to normal. So I, I don't think that's that much of a concern. Um, and then as far as the erroneous understanding of the chronic effects of, stre- of static stretching go, I've seen this claim repeated so many times that if, if I had a nickel for every time I saw it, I'd probably have like maybe two or three bucks, which is kind of a lot when you think about it. Um that if you stretch, it's it's only uh, causing a short-term neural effect. So it's acutely increasing stretch tolerance. Uh, you can get a few extra degrees of range of motion from that, and then you know, 20 minutes later, your your flexibility is back to where it was before, and chronically stretching isn't actually going to increase flexibility or mobility. I have no fucking idea where that idea started from. Uh, It is quite frankly insane. It contradicts uh, an enormous amount of of literature and also just doesn't even pass the reality test. Like if you look at any of the athletes in any of the sports that have uh, truly exceptional flexibility. So, you know, uh, gymnasts, dancers, uh, martial arts athletes and certain martial arts, 
they got that way because they do a ton of stretching and have from a very young age. Like it, uh, <laughs> it absolutely causes longitudinal chronic increases in flexibility. And I do not know how people got the idea that it didn't. Uh, but that's like a pretty common claim I'll see, which again, quite frankly, completely unhinged. Um, but yeah, so in, in that regard, I'm, I think, firmly outside the mainstream of like the strength training, powerlifting, SNC, maybe bodybuilding community. Uh, but then I thought about it more and I was like, well, it's hard to say that's outside the common wisdom of the fitness community because like, I don't know, fucking yoga exists and <laughs> they do they do a ton of stretching for the express purpose of increasing flexibility and range of motion and, you know, other things as well. But like, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to say that it's common wisdom that stretching doesn't chronically increase flexibility and range of motion and is a bad thing to do because there's large swaths of the fitness community where that's just taken as a truism and, you know, half of what they do is stretching. So, you know, and I, I think that that, I think that that generalizes a ton to almost everything. Like, uh, you know, common wisdom within the strength training, bodybuilding community about protein intake, you're going to get very different common, common wisdom regarding protein intake and protein recommendations. If you spend much time in like, a vegan endurance athlete part of the fitness community, which like does exist and is pretty big. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I can't think of a single piece of common wisdom that is just generally shared across the entirety of the fitness community. So I, I kind of reject the premise. Uh, one of the other things as well is even within communities, what is perceived to be common wisdom shifts over time and I, I can't think of a better example of that than uh, than ideas about ideal training frequency for strength gain and muscle growth. So I, I got into lifting not that long ago, uh, 2000, yeah, I, guess, I guess it was kind of a long time ago. It was like 2005, 2006. Uh, and back then, the standard advice was to train with a low frequency. Uh, so you know, one time per per muscle group or per lift per week, or maybe two if you have a lagging lift, lagging body part, and and you're not afraid to be a little bit aggressive with it. Uh, and these days, I mean, we, we get questions to our, our uh, Q&A uh, little form where people are like, hey, can, can you still build muscle if you only train a muscle group once per week? Um, so that the, the common wisdom regarding ideal frequency has completely shifted from only train once per week, unless you want to overtrain and die to, is it even possible to make, to, to cause significant hypertrophy if you're only training a muscle group once per week? Uh, so, you know, if there's any sort of like longitudinal component to, um, the idea of common wisdom within fitness, I definitely don't think that there's anything that's just generally shared across the entire uh, fitness community. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to say what uh, which of my ideas are firmly outside the mainstream because I wouldn't even feel confident taking a swing at what the mainstream is. You know, another great example of that change within a particular group 
in terms of the consensus mm-hmm. is if you look at the history of strength and conditioning for the longest time, if you were a team sport athlete, uh, in like any sport, they did not want you lifting weights. Oh yeah. I mean, they're like, you know, if, if you've got my, my linebackers lifting weights, they're going to get slow and they're going to lose flexibility. They're not going to be able to play the game. Uh, and it was surprisingly not that long ago that that was the prevailing perspective. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, we've got our punters doing reps with 225 at the combine, <laughs> you know, so it, it's been a huge change where uh, having someone who's just a, a total beast in the weight room is a selling point now for a recruit or, or for a draft pick in, 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 in certain sports. And, uh, you know, not that long ago, not that many decades ago, if people found out that you were lifting regularly, they're like, ah, he's probably going to slow down a lot. He's probably not going to be able to compete. So yeah, that stuff changes all the time. Uh, okay. I've got a question here from Peter. Uh, so Peter, uh, does his workouts in the morning and he, he acknowledges in the question, he, he says, I understand that this limits my absolute performance, the weight on the bar, the repetitions completed. The question is, how much does that actually matter for a non-competitive trainee who's focused on something like health or hypertrophy or something like that? Uh, you know, so if I'm doing three sets of 10 on the bench press with, you know, two reps in reserve, does it matter if the weight is... 10 or 15 pounds lower, uh, you know, because I'm training in the morning fasted. Uh, so I, I want to answer this in a couple ways. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about the, the direct question that was asked, but then I want to chat. I want to contextualize the implication that fasted training necessarily, uh, in all cases is going to hinder performance. So the first part, uh, Performance matters some in an absolute sense, uh, but the goal is is really critical to consider here. So if you're just training for general health goals, the absolute performance of what you're doing in the gym, we have a ton of wiggle room there. We, we don't have to worry about it too much. If you're training because you want to make sure that you maintain activities of daily living as you age, we don't need every training session to be, you know, just an absolutely perfect effort. Uh, we don't need to make sure that we've optimized every aspect of your program. Getting in there, doing some hard stuff, and then recovering before the next time is probably going to be enough if health is the primary objective. As long as you're performing pretty well to the best of your ability, there's a lot of wiggle room there. Body composition goals, we got to do a little bit better than that. Um, you know, it, it's it's not the top of that spectrum or the furthest end of that spectrum, which is if you've got a performance specific goal, a performance oriented goal, you got to make sure you're performing well in your training sessions. In my opinion, you, you got, you got to be trying to optimize that performance in the gym, getting better over time. But body composition goals are kind of in the middle there where, uh, the goal is not necessarily uh, to optimize every aspect of your performance, but we still want to perform well in those sessions because hypertrophy, you know, we'll talk about all these different mechanisms, uh, that drive hypertrophy and, you know, providing that mechanical tension to the muscle fiber is important. And, and I struggle to, uh, I struggle to believe that the weight on the bar is completely inconsequential, uh, or, or the number of repetitions we complete is, is inconsequential. I think, uh, if we're trying to maximize hypertrophy, we want to be performing well so that we can pr- provide 
plenty of mechanical tension in a time efficient manner. Um, now that doesn't, you, you could argue the degree to which it matters, but I think if you look at it on really big extremes, just absolutely terrible performance versus absolutely optimized performance, there's probably going to be a difference there for the trainee who's, who's trying to maximize hypertrophy. Um, so yeah, I mean, we want to perform well, but the degree to which we sweat over the details is going to vary based on your goal. And it really doesn't make sense to, to sweat too much over that stuff if you're really health-focused. If you're very performance-focused, you probably ought to be sweating over the details. And if your main goals are body composition, you're probably somewhere in the middle there. Uh, but it never hurts to perform well in the gym, especially when the reason we're in the gym is to apply mechanical tension to the muscle fibers. Um, now, one thing that I did want to uh, mention here is that the performance detriment associated with fasted training is still relatively uncertain. Uh, it's not like rejected, but there is some nuance to consider there. So there was a study back in the day, uh, I forget the author, uh, but they looked at, you know, giving people either a carb heavy breakfast or just a water placebo and looking at their resistance training performance and relatively unsurprisingly, it was better to have a breakfast than no breakfast. But that same group did a follow-up study where uh, they had the, the carb-heavy breakfast, they also had the water condition, but they also had a placebo breakfast that basically just filled you up and you felt like you ate something and you did, uh, but there, there wasn't really a lot of caloric content to speak of, uh, and it certainly wasn't rich in carbohydrates. So Wasn't it just like basically gloop? Yeah, it was this like I think it was orange flavored psyllium husk. Yeah, it was this orange favor flavored like just kind of jelly kind of substance <laughs> uh, that really didn't have considerable caloric content. And so, uh, what was really interesting was that the carb heavy breakfast again outperformed water, but the minimal calorie gloop, uh, just orange stuff, uh, actually led to pretty similar performance as the carb heavy breakfast. And, and so the the conclusion there was, you know, you, you definitely don't want to be training hungry. That's probably not a good thing for your performance. But when it comes to the actual energy content of the meal, it raised some interesting questions that, in my opinion, um, we still haven't really figured out exactly how much uh, the energy content of the breakfast matters when training early in the morning. Uh, it seems like something is better than nothing, but there's a, a, a considerable amount of debate in terms of do you just need to stave off hunger during your workout or you, do you actually need to provide critical macronutrients? And if so, which ones? Um, now, I, I think you could also argue that uh, you, you, I mean, like I said, you don't want to be training hungry you probably don't want to be training super carb depleted, uh, especially if you're doing relatively glycolytic resistance training work. Um, breakfast, uh, a, a lot of these studies are focusing on do you need it? If so, how, how should it be uh, designed, your, your breakfast, in terms of the, the macronutrients? Maybe it's not as critical if the nighttime meal is sufficient. So if you have a really big meal at night before, uh, you, know, before you go to sleep, maybe the composition of, of the nighttime feeding strategy the day before kind of alleviates the need to have a really elaborate breakfast before you train. Uh, and you, you could argue that's probably even more so the case if you have some kind of intra-workout feeding strategy. So 
the takeaway is not that, you know, we have strong evidence that you definitely should be training in a fasted state and it doesn't have any uh, negative ramifications, but it's still kind of an open question. And the more evidence we get, the more frustrating it gets because it's hard to put together a really cohesive picture. I would say that the most parsimonious approach and the most conservative approach uh, approach for someone who wants to really make sure that they're performing well in the gym is to at least have a light breakfast if you're training you know, first thing in the morning, if you can stomach it. Uh, something that at the bare minimum has maybe 20 grams of carbs. Maybe you throw some protein in there as well. I probably wouldn't go super high on the fat just because it takes a long time to digest. Um, so I think some small snack before training is probably a good idea if if it agrees with your stomach. But if it makes you nauseous to train with food in your stomach and, you know, for some reason, liquid, uh, a liquid meal isn't going to be an option, uh, you could be doing more harm than good if you're inducing an upset stomach before you go into train. So it's a nuanced question. I wanted to make sure that I at least addressed some of those nuances uh, before moving on to the next one. So Connor Smith asked, this is one of the few ones that I got from uh, the thread that you put up. So Connor Smith uh, said Greg in previous episodes has talked about his pet peeve of people saying correlation doesn't imply causation in situations where it's not really relevant and nobody's actually implying causation. Um, so Connor asks on a statistical level, what does imply causation? Uh, and he also asks, what kind of statistical analysis would I do uh, to basically provide support for a causative statement? Um, or a statement that directly suggests causation. Uh, so I wanted to briefly answer this uh, because it's something that comes up so frequently. But the idea of making inferences about causation, you know, it's one thing to say that two things are correlated. That, that's a low bar to clear. If, if the two things seem to change in unison, either, you know, one goes up, the other goes up, one goes up, the other goes down. It's very... Uh, very easy to make statements about correlation. Uh, there's not a really high bar to clear there. But when we make statements about causation, we say that one thing is causing another, we have to uh, do a lot more work to really defend that type of statement. We, it requires a much, uh, a much different level of evidence. But causation is not about the statistical analysis. It's more about the study design when we're talking about research. So one of the reasons that, that people say, oh, correlation doesn't cause or doesn't imply uh, causation is because a lot of times we're using correlation in observational research. So we're looking at a big population of people and we're saying, hey, the people who ate more fast food had higher rates of, you know, coronary heart disease or whatever. Uh, and, and so you can look at that correlation and say, hey, that seems kind of bad, but you're, you're still just making observations. You're not doing a tightly controlled experiment where you're controlling for confounding variables. You're randomizing groups to different interventions. It's just simply a, a very uh, high level observation that doesn't require uh, or doesn't involve a great degree of control in, in, the, uh, in the study. Now, when you contrast that with something like uh, a randomized controlled trial, where we basically identify the key variables that need to be literally controlled uh, and we randomize people to receive one treatment or the other and they don't know which treatment they've received and we look at how the treatment uh, impacts a very specific outcome over time 
and we test that with you know some some type of inferential statistics the reason we can make uh causative statements there if the study was designed well is because of the design it's not because of the the analysis done so you if you wanted to you could go find some observational data you could arbitrarily group it however you want you could run a t-test which is you often used in randomized controlled trials as the analysis but you can't say oh this isn't a correlation it's a t-test now we've got causation here right i mean it's really about the study design and not the uh, statistical analysis employed. A t-test is still correlation. Yes, it is. <laughs> but you know, people look at a randomized controlled trial that uses a t-test or oh, ANOVA, no. and they they think, oh, that's that's causative stuff. No, I I, I know, and I know you know a t-test is correlation. But yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I feel like a lot of people don't know that they they see a t-test and they're like, oh, this is a fundamentally different thing than. Pearson regression, but no, the the math that powers them is the same. Yes, uh, and yeah, so uh, whether you're talking about correlation, regression, t-test, ANOVA, they all fall within the general linear model framework, and the the nuts and bolts, uh, you know, the math behind it is all the same. Uh, yeah. But but it, it just uh, yeah, it, it's all about how your predictors are coded. Basically, uh, is what determines those differences there. Uh, now there is some stuff I, I should acknowledge this. Uh, if, if you're getting into other fields, you really don't see this much in the exercise and the sport nutrition literature. But you may come across something called structural equation modeling uh, or or similar um, procedures that have kind of stemmed out from it, and it causes a lot of confusion. If if you Google structural equation modeling causation, you're going to find like the first million results that all say like clearing up the confusion about SEM and causation. So so it sounds like that confusion has been thoroughly cleared up. Uh, well, if so, then they wouldn't need a thousand posts to, <laughs> to go back and through it. But so one of the things that's tricky there is sometimes people use structural equation modeling with observational data. Um, and what you do is you kind of you kind of make some assumptions about this causative pathway and the things that kind of mediate or interfere with this causative pathway. You you create uh, a, a kind of diagram, so to speak, that needs to make some assumptions about causal relationships. And, and that kind of forms the framework for the analysis. And I'll be very clear, I've never done SEM uh, but that's kind of like the general overview is that it, it involves kind of plotting out a causal pathway, incorporating other elements into the analysis. And so what, what's tricky is that some people think uh, when they look at that, oh, cool. So now we can infer causation. But again, if the data were not generated uh, with a with a design that allows you to make claims about causation, there, there's no amount of sophisticated modeling that can really get you over that bar. Causation is a study design issue, not an analytical approach issue. You can do some approaches that are maybe, maybe give you a little bit more um, freedom to kind of drift toward those types of statements. But if you really want to make a strong inferences, a strong inference about causation, it comes down to having a really tight study design uh, where you really do a, have a high degree of experimental control. 
another thing that if you're really interested in causation, you want to do some additional reading, there's something called the Bradford Hill criteria uh, that are very commonly applied. Uh, it's a group of nine principles that can be useful in establishing uh, epidemiologic evidence of a causal relationship. Uh, but, but again, it's, it's kind of just trying to establish what are we looking for when we try to make inferences related to causation. Uh, I'm sure people argue back and forth about the, the exact criteria that ought to be implemented, but a lot of times you'll see people who will say, you know what, we don't really have a good randomized controlled trial on this, but if we use you know this list of criteria, it kind of seems like there might be a, a causative relationship between X and Y. Uh, so if you're really interested in what goes into establishing causation uh, and different perspectives on it, you can look up the Bradford Hill criteria and probably spend the next 10 years reading about it. Yeah, I uh, w- when you were, said you were going to answer that question, I went ahead and got the Bradford Hill criteria pulled up and I was hoping to have something to contribute, but I suppose I do not. Ac- actually, I do have one thing to add, uh, and that is just the... The concept of causation, I think, uh, is is a concept that people get muddled uh, because causation means different things in different contexts. And when most people think of causation, they think of something where like A necessarily entails B or A necessarily leads to B. Uh, and that that is the type of causation that one can establish in, say, in vitro research. So if uh, if you're trying to develop, say, a protein that will fit in a receptor uh, just right, uh, you, you could say, like, okay, uh, if we make a protein with this particular amino acid sequence, it will bind to this receptor with this degree of affinity if it comes in contact with it. Uh, and that's something where it's a very controlled environment um, and like on on a molecular atomic level, you can see A necessarily entails B. If the protein is shaped like this, it will bind to this receptor with this degree of affinity. Uh, that is not what we're talking about typically when we're making causal type statements uh, when we're dealing with in vivo research, when we're dealing with entire organisms. Um, so, you know, let's say someone does a really, really good randomized control trial uh, on the effects of creatine on muscle growth or something like that. You have uh, random sampling, which is ideal, but we never do. Uh, you have random group allocation uh, and everything's blinded. Subjects don't know if they're in the the creatine or the placebo arm. Uh, Researchers don't know who's in what arm. Uh, Everything is done the way you would want it to be done to establish the causal relationship between creatine supplementation and muscle growth. Um, In a situation like that, you're still going to have variability in muscle growth. There will be some subjects who didn't take creatine who grow more than some of the subjects who did take creatine. There's going to be a lot of variability within both groups. Uh, And so someone who's dealing with that kind of molecular understanding of causation would look at that and say, like, this isn't A necessarily entails B. This isn't this sort of, like, one-to-one causal relationship 
that I think of when I think causation. Uh, but when we're dealing with in vivo research, we're almost necessarily dealing with p- partial causation. So there's going to be a lot of factors that influence responses to whatever stimulus you're you're placing on people. Uh, and you're trying to establish if the intervention itself is one of those causes. So you're not going to deal with like perfect one-to-one correlations. You're not going to be seeing A necessarily entails B. But if you get uh, a, a pretty strong, significant finding in a well-designed, well-controlled, well-conducted RCT, uh, you're you're establishing partial causation there. So you're basically establishing that whatever you're investigating is one of the factors that contributes to the outcome that you're interested in, not necessarily that it's a one-to-one relationship. That's that's not the type of causal relationship that we look for in 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 vivo research. All right, good stuff. Uh, so I guess we're going to close out uh, with the best question. Saved it for last. Yeah. So uh, agreeable ad zero one 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 asks. Is cereal really just a soup? Justify your answer, please. Do you do you want to lead off? Um, I would say yes. Uh, I would say cereal is a soup because a soup doesn't have to be hot. There are plenty of cold soups, mm-hmm. and when you think of a soup, you're thinking of, uh, you know, some solid food stuff. Well, not always, but in many cases, uh, some kind of solid food stuff that is uh, submerged in a uh, a liquid broth and that broth often has uh, multiple components to it such as uh, a milk product so uh, I would say as long as the cereal is being consumed in the traditional format with uh, some type of milk product I would say yes now if the cereal is being consumed outside of that context then the answer would be no and you know I, I've used cereals uh, in many different ways in my uh, cooking in the past. So I think it's contextually uh, dependent upon putting the cereal in a bowl-like container and pouring in an adequate amount of a milk product. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think cereal is absolutely a soup, again, if it's if it's served with milk. Um, so I, I would count myself a soup maximalist and i think you you have to be if you uh just do enough research on what is commonly considered a soup and when you see the the broad array of things that can be considered soups and are considered soups uh i think that that variability necessarily entails that most uh most liquid-based things with other things mixed in are therefore soups. So uh, when when people think about soups, so one of the th- common things that will come up is like, ooh, ooh, yeah, cereal's a soup because soups don't have to be hot. What about gazpacho? Uh, but that's still like kind of savory. So some, so a, a cereal soup skeptic could push back against against it and say like, well, yeah, I mean, gazpacho is is it cold soup but i mean that's that's very different from cereal like the whole flavor profile is different uh but if you go to the wikipedia article about soup which you should uh that's that's where all of the good research is done um 
there are dessert soups. So this isn't necessarily something that would uh, be top of mind, say, for Americans. Uh, but there are dessert soups from Vietnam, the Philippines, Japan, China, uh, and Trinidad and Tobago that are listed on the Wikipedia page. And the first one, which I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of, but I think it would be pronounced che, uh, is a Vietnamese cold dessert soup containing sugar and coconut milk, uh, with many different varieties of other ingredients, including taro, cassava, adzuki bean, mung bean, jackfruit, and durian. Uh, and, and specifically focusing on things like, uh, like adzuki beans, like beans, you know, you're, you're dealing with starchy staple crops, uh, which, you know, most, uh, most cereals themselves are going to be corn-based or wheat-based or barley-based. Uh, and like barley soup itself is a thing. So, you know, you can't really tell me that processing that grain product uh, makes it less of a soup. So the sheer existence of dessert soups, I think, makes it a pretty open and shut case that um, that cereal is a soup as well. I didn't realize this uh, until I went to the Wikipedia page, but apparently fruit soup is a thing as well. Um, I don't know how I feel about that, but I mean, who am I to tell people that they're wrong? Uh, and yeah, I mean, if, if fruit soups can be a thing, then yeah, sure. Cereal is absolutely a soup. Uh, I think once you account for fruit soups and dessert soups, you necessarily have to be a soup maximalist. And uh, there, are, there are many soups in this wild and wonderful world. You know, I, I don't know if my eyes deceive me right now, but I, I did some Wikipedia searching, uh, followed from link to link, wound up somewhere. But I'm looking at a banana soup. And first of all, it looks delicious. Uh, everything about it looks great. <laughs> it looks like, so it, it's got banana, it's got milk. Uh, but it looks like there are maybe some vanilla wafers or some type of sweet processed grain product sitting Ooh. upon top of it. And uh, first of all, it just sounds incredible and looks incredible. But if those are vanilla wafers, then this basically is cereal because some people do cut up banana and put it in their cereal. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we literally have photographic evidence uh, to support our, our idea here. So yeah, uh, to, to answer the question, uh, Trex and I, for once on a food topic, are in agreement. Uh, cereal is absolutely a soup. Tell it to the haters. Uh, yeah, any anyone who, who doesn't accept that, uh, they're they're not welcome in our in our audience. And pop tarts are a form of ravioli. Correct. Yeah, they're yeah. they're a sweet ravioli that shouldn't be controversial. Uh, lasagna, spaghetti flavored cake, as I'm sure we're all aware. Um, there there are many things. Yep. All right. Well, I think that does it for this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and we will be back in two weeks. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. 
You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.